It's my great joy this morning to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Revelation chapter 11. We'll be looking together this morning at chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. This is our last uh, sermon in this series that we have had on a call to be thankful from the Bible, and I am uh, so looking forward to sharing this text with you today. Uh, I want to invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of the perfect word of our sovereign God. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within His temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Let us pray. O Lord, Thank you so much that we have gathered here today as your people, as a family, as the household of faith. And we open your word and pray, Lord, that you help us to see clearly, to see the world as it really is, to start with you, to believe your promises, to cling to your truth. Oh Lord, help us to be a faithful outpost of Your kingdom that one day You will consummate. Lord, we pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother, and every Christian is my brother too. These six truths are what J.I. Packer, the theologian who passed away not too long ago, says that every believer should say to themselves every single day. It's a way to frame your thinking in a way that reflects the truth of the Bible. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother too. Packer says this, Say it over and over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning. Last thing at night. As you wait for the bus. Any time your mind is free. And ask that you may be enabled to live. As one who knows, it is all utterly and completely true. 
in Christ. This framing of our lives, thinking in the right categories, is something that the book of Revelation helps us to do. And it's vital because all of us take in information and we understand that information of how, in light of how we are framing the world. And the issue is whether or not we're framing it rightly. In this eight-week study on thankfulness, we've, we've seen some things throughout the Bible that show up. One of those things is that thankfulness is essentially a synonym for Christian living. If we understand who we are in Christ, then we will be a thankful people. A second is that, that our internal environment, who we are on the inside, what we can't control is more fundamental to living a thankful life than our external environment. Things that we can't control. What do we think about? What do we meditate on? What do we fill our heart and mind with? Third, knowing there is meaning in all things liberates us to be thankful in all things. And four, thankfulness comes from seeing things as they actually are, according to the truth of God's Word. It is not wishful thinking. It is not just simply uh, refusing to look at things that are negative or difficult. No, it's seeing things as they actually are. The message of the book of Revelation is so important for our living here and now with thankfulness. People wrongly think about the book of Revelation and they think about only in terms of what it tells us about the future. And it certainly tells us things about the future, but it tells us those things that we would be transformed here and now. If I could summarize what the the book of Revelation tells us, it would be this. Things are not as they seem. God rules history, and He will bring it to its consummation in Christ. That, that, That we have to see what we face here and now in light of the reality of what God says He is doing where He is bringing the world. He is the one that rules history. And all history will be consummated in Jesus Christ. Revelation punctuates the message of the entire Bible. In fact, there are over 350 quotations or allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. There is a sense in which it's not telling us new things, It is reminding us of what God has been saying, and it gives us new clarity on those things. And it's very vivid. It helps us to to see with its imagery and and hear with the, the sounds that are vivid that it provides us. And so that in seeing and hearing, we may have greater understanding. We can put it this way, it it revs up our gospel imagination. It imprints our minds with glory, the glory of Christ. And that's important. 
You see, the hope for all of our lives would be that the default of our minds would be to think of Christ, to think of His glory, to think of His promises. Our text today finds us toward the end of a long scene in the book of Revelation. It starts in chapter 8, verse 1, and goes all the way through the end of what we're looking at today, chapter 11, verse 19. This uh, known as the seven trumpets, the, the blasting of the seven trumpets. But, but one thing that we understand because we do have our Bibles is that the Bible has already told us in this kind of context what the blowing of trumpets means. It means coming judgment. Just, just a couple of examples. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Our, our consider Ezekiel 33, beginning in verse 3. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away. His blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The blowing of the trumpet, the Bible tells us, in this sort of scene, is a warning of coming judgment. But the judgment is an answer to a cry that we find in the book of Revelation. And it tells us that the, the martyrs, those who shed their blood for their faith, those who died for their faith in Christ, are, are crying out. And what they're crying out for is justice. Revelation 6.10 puts it this way. It says that these martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And that's sort of a, a technical term that, that means those who stand in the way of your kingdom. The next verse, Revelation 6.11, gives a, a short, immediate answer. Then they were get, each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The, the short answer is, oh, oh, God is at work. But God is gathering a people and the fullness of that number has not come in. Here is your white robe. Rest a little longer. But the larger answer is given in the book of Revelation as a whole. And it says this, Things are not as they seem. God rules history. And He will bring it to its consummation in Christ through salvation and judgment. He will make all things right. The, the trumpets are a call to repentance and a, a promise of coming justice. Justice. 
But this last one, this seventh trumpet blast, it comes at a time where right before it, there's this interlude. There's this, this telling of the story in this vision to John that interrupts telling what the trumpets are about. And it really prepares us for what is said in the seventh trumpet. We, we won't spend along there, but, but let, me, let me remind you that chapter 11, verses 1 through 14 are picking up on imagery in the book of Zechariah. And, and in Zechariah 2, there, there's a call to measure so that the Lord can be, uh, provide a wall of protection around an area. And in here it says that he was told to, to, to have a measuring rod like a staff and to measure the temple of God. And in this context, the, the temple of God is, is the whole area where God is gathering his people. But he says, don't measure the outer court for those who are not a part of God's people. You see, the text goes out of its way to remind us again and again that there are those who are God's people. And there are those who are not. And then it tells us that there will be two witnesses raised up. And these witnesses, he said, are two olive trees and two lampstands. And, and the, the, the olive trees here are a reference to anointed ones, probably a reference to Zerubbabel and, and Joshua the high priest. And the lampstands are, are bearers of light that God provides, it tells us in Zechariah 4. And in Revelation 1.20 it tells us it's the churches. These, these witnesses are raised up. These who bear witness to the truth. It says they have power like Elijah to, to stop the rain and cause it to rain. They have power like Moses, it says, who was able to turn the waters to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. You see, these are those who bear true testimony. And as Moses was vindicated, as Elijah was vindicated, as Joshua and Zerubbabel, God will vindicate His messengers who bear His message. But we must understand that the entire biblical story from the time of the fall on to the ultimate casting away of the evil one himself is a clash of kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God that He is establishing and there are all of these parasitic kingdoms that are raised up who shake their fist at the kingdom of God. And so he tells us here that even here, the, the Antichrist, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will be uh, loose to make war on them and conquer them. And we find out something that surprises us. The witnesses end up dead and lying in the street. And it reminds us of Sodom and Egypt. Humanity is worst in Sodom and most oppressive in Egypt. And it says that the people come by the bodies and mock. But then it tells us that after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. They are resurrected. The church cannot be destroyed. God said, come up here. And their enemies watched them come up. You see, this message is important for us to understand because we live in this time between the ages. We live in this time where we're on this fallen world and yet the, the glory of the world to come has come in Christ 
And so we are a people that understand God has not caused, called us here and now to an easy life. It's not what He's called us to at all. And yet we are to be representatives of His kingdom. We are to be His witnesses. You see, in 11.14, it tells us that this, this seventh trumpet blast is also the third woe. The third woe is soon to come. And what follows is the middle of the book of Revelation. And structurally, I think it's its heart, its most important section for us to understand what the message of the book is about. And he reminds a people, a people who have martyrs crying out, how long, O Lord? A people who understand that there's evil in the world and there's rebellion and there's wickedness and there's sin and even our own sin. And he calls us to remember his reign. He takes us to this this unfolding of things at the end. Not the very end, but an announcement of the period of the end. And we are reminded about this God who is ruling the world. Look with me at verse 15 of Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices. They aren't identified. Perhaps it's the multitude who we find declaring things in heaven, or angels are a combination of the two, but there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. I I can't read that without hearing the hallelujah chorus of Handel's Messiah ringing in my head. That He shall reign forever and ever. This this declaration here, this this announcement that, that there is coming a time where it will be the period of the end. And all of the kingdoms... Now, you notice it's singular here. Because it's speaking of all of the opposing kingdoms in the world as one unified whole. There's the kingdom of Christ and there is everything else. But there is coming a day when the kingdom of the world, the the cosmos, the, the, the world that stands in the way of God's kingdom, it says, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, of His Messiah, of His anointed King, which you heard read about earlier in Psalm 2. Now, I want you to notice this, that the verbs here, speak of this in the past tense. It's a, it's a particular um, literary device here that means that this event is so sure to happen that it is spoken of as if it has already happened. That's the way we are to live based on God's promises. We aren't to live wondering if God will come and all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever. We are to know that it is coming and that in a sense, we live as if it's already here. Now, how is this a woe? The third woe. Well, it's a woe if you don't want the kingdom of God to come. It's a warning. It is a declaration that the cries of the martyrs will be vindicated. You see, 
It promises two things, the coming judgment or justice of God and the vindication of all who are in Christ. The the kingdom conflict message in the Bible is from the beginning to the end where there is uh, a voice in the garden that says, has God really said? And they listen. And then there's a promise that a seed born of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And when we get to our ends of our Bible, that ancient serpent of old in the end is cast into outer darkness. And who reigns is not the serpent, but who reigns is God. Who reigns is the Messiah, that seed born of woman. You see, the Messiah is the Lord of history, and He shall reign forever. What a comfort this is to us as we struggle with the kingdoms of this world. We, we, we wring our hands and, and think about the things going on in the world, all around the world, and the dangers in the world. And you think about the persecutions going on in the world. We think about our, our own governmental structure that which frustrates us all the time. We should absolutely care about those things. There's absolutely con- uh, consequences for how the kingdoms of this world operate but we are people who are thankful in the midst of it all because we know that we will say with lips that have experienced it, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. You see, behind the entire world system opposed to Christ is the God of this age, the evil one. It will be pictured in concentrated form in the end by one called the Antichrist. But this God of this age is called many things in the Bible. The accuser, the adversary, Beelzebub, Belial, the dragon, the evil one, the God of this world, the prince of the power of air, the roaring lion, the ruler of the demons, the serpent of old, the tempter, the devil, Satan. He is a usurper. He's a parasite. But we must never forget what Luther said, that even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil is God's devil. There is no question who's in control of the cosmos. It is not Satan. It is God. Believers make two mistakes. They either sort of ignore the reality of Satan and demons and and live almost like the the Bible doesn't have anything to do with the supernatural. It's just sort of to help me live a little bit better life here and now, like a self-help book. Or those who get obsessed with the devil and demons, and we are to be neither. We recognize this world for what it is, and we see fallenness and brokenness and wickedness and evil, and we rightly shed tears about it. But make no mistake, there will only be one who reigns forever and ever, and that is the Messiah. The Apostle Paul speaks of the end in this way. Then the First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty four through twenty eight. Then then comes the end, and he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. <clears throat> For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
And then he goes on to say, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him. This is the father who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all and in all. You see, there's there's something within all of us that rightly says. The world is not as it should be. Things are not right. We long for something beyond this. And we are to look to the reign of the Messiah. But look with me at verses 16 and through 18, and we see not only His reign, but His justice. This elaborates on the announcement of verse 15. Look with me at verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped. The 24 elders seem to be representative of the redeemed of all the ages. And, and here they are pictured as the same thing they're doing when, they are, when we look at the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5. They are falling on their faces before God and they are worshiping. And verse 17 says, they are saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. The language here means you are the irresistible one who has sovereign power. We give thanks to you. And then he says, who is and who was. Speaking of his eternity, now it's very interesting to note that earlier in the book in Revelation 1.8, it says, who is and who was and who is to come. The, the, the no longer to come because he has come in power in this picture that we, we have given. And so now he is who is and who was the eternal one who has come in power. And that's what it says next in verse 17. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, the verb here is past completed action with lingering results. You are the one who is permanently sovereign, who is ruling and reigning, and for that we give thanks. And then verse 18. The nations raged. Psalm 2 is picked up again. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying, the destroyers of the earth. You remember Psalm 2 you read earlier? Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst apart and cast away their cords from us. The rebellion that we see in the world that's representatively explained here in Psalm 2 and here is the nations raging against the kingdom of God, saying, I will go my own way. I will do what I want to do. But one thing that we must understand is that God's kingdom demands justice. It cannot be consummated when the peoples defy His rule. And when it says here, the dead to be judged, yes, all will be raised for judgment. And there will those who will experience the wrath of God. But there are also those It says, for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets of old, the the saints, God's faithful in every era. And then that's explained. What does it mean to talk about these who are the prophets and the saints? They are those who fear your name. 
a way of talking about what faith looks like. And then notice both small and great. Nobody has ever earned anything to be a part of this kingdom, to experience this blessing of God. We are not able to discern who are the great and who are the small, but those people are gathered. And we are to understand that things are not what they seem, that we can't just simply evaluate the world on our own. We can't make our own conclusions without remembering God and thinking about the gospel and remembering what he has said. And then finally it says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see, every kingdom that is built in defiance to God, some are huge and mighty and look powerful, and yet at the end of the day, they are all a part of destruction. Everyone who builds a kingdom other than God's kingdom will know ultimately the destruction of it. No matter how it appears, no matter how one says like King Nebuchadnezzar that that look at my power and my might, Psalm 2-4 is true. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. And then He goes on to say, I have set my King in Zion. And it unfolds what we are looking at here, the promise of the Messiah. You see, God's judgment and God's justice is not arbitrary. It is based on His character. And I want to remind you today that God's justice demands judgment. Justice makes love possible. A lot of times we get hung up on God's judgment. And we start evaluating God in ways that may be convenient for us here and now, but don't even hold up to our own scrutiny. You see, if there was no justice in the world, if there was no coming day of reckoning, if there was no sovereign who would make all things right, then all you're left with is vengeance and retaliation. That's all you have. How can you love your enemy? How can you bless those who persecute you? Because there's a coming day of judgment. There's coming day of justice. All of us intuitively within our soul cry out for justice. The martyrs crying, how long, O Lord, before you vindicate us when someone wrongs us? The the sort of internal trigger toward justice flares up very quickly. And if we're a believer, if we know Christ, if we know the God who will make all things right, then we're liberated to do what doesn't make any sense apart from that. Love even our enemies and bless even those who persecute us. You see, hell is a monument to human autonomy. I will do what I want. C.S. Lewis has said there's two types of people in the world. There are those who say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. We do everything we can to put judgment out of our mind and not think about it. 
We joke about it. We distract ourselves. But let me assure you, God takes your life seriously. And all will give us, will give an account. And everybody's sin and rebellion will be dealt with. Either in Christ or within one who faces God's wrath, God's judgment, and what can be described as eternal destruction. But finally, his presence. Look with me at verse 19 of Revelation 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within the temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake. God's temple, that place that had represented his presence, that was at the center of the tabernacle, at the center of the temple. The, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was within the Holy of Holies. The, the blood would be sprinkled on top of it. You see, a picture is being drawn here. In Matthew 27, verse 51, when, when Jesus was paying the penalty for the sins of those who would believe on Him on the cross, it tells us that the curtain separating men from the presence of God was torn in two. And that, that we are to understand that there's an openness in which all can come to Christ because of His death resurrection and know His forgiveness. All have access in the Spirit of Christ. But there is a coming day in a new heavens and new earth where that fellowship, that oneness will be unmediated. And so the language here is that God's temple in heaven was opened welcoming people into God's presence. And the Ark of the Covenant, that's which symbolized the, the covenant of truth that God made with His people. That's which symbolized His promises. That which harkens back to Genesis 3, uh, 15, where we have the first gospel promise and how that was brought forward in a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with David. And ultimately, the new covenant is fulfilled in Christ. There it is. We see that God has made a way for us to be with Him, to be in His presence. In Revelation 21.3, we see the consummation of this picture. And there's just this declaration. Behold! God dwells with men. The very presence of God. The final exclamation mark on the promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be your God and you will be my people. And the experience of that in this picture of the end is more glorious than anything we can imagine. His presence. When it speaks here of flashes of lightning, rumblings, uh, and peals of thunder and earthquake, we, our mind immediately goes to Mount Sinai where God meets with His people. And, and these phenomena are de declarations of His majesty and His power that are there when He is present. In Revelation 21.5, after it says, Behold, God dwells with men. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, there will be an end of all the evil kingdoms of men. There will be an end made to all rebellion and shaking fist of God. 
and there will be the church's reward. And the greatest reality of the church's reward is the living in the very unmediated presence of God. Thankful? Yeah. How can you be thankful in a world filled with so much pain and so much heartache and, 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 and so much uh, hurt and hate and evil? How? Because of his reign. Because of his justice. And because of his presence. You see, without these things, there can be no true thankfulness. Only wishful thinking. But because of these things, because of his reign, his justice, and his presence, we can say with honest lips that in Christ, I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother too. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you today. We thank you for your kingdom. Lord, as our hearts often get swept away, as we are frustrated with ourselves, with the world that we live in, with the kingdoms of this world, with the rulers that are in opposition to You. Lord, may our greatest thought every day be of Your kingdom. You are the God who reigns forever and ever. You are the God of justice. So we can be people of love. And you will never leave us or forsake us. You are with us in Christ right now. And you will be with us in an even more glorious way when you consummate your kingdom. Oh Lord, imprint this glory on our hearts and minds that we would never forget it and that we would always be thankful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.